You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and then were not able to haul it in because of the large quantity of fish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We're still talking about the life that invites. Last week we talked about Jesus being the life that invites our doubts into the resurrection. Next week we're going to be talking about Jesus as the life that invites our disappointments into the resurrection. Today, what I was going to talk about was Jesus is the life that invites our failures into the resurrection, but I had a check in my spirit about the way I was going to talk about failure. And what I felt the spirit correct me on was that failures, the moment where we actually fail, is really the symptom of something that was happening in us a long time ago. And so we will exhaust ourselves if we just try to go through all of our individual failures because odds are our failures can come down to maybe one or two or three things in our life that produce a harvest of hardship. And so for me, what I felt the Spirit lead me to for this particular Sunday is the way Jesus deals with our failure is by dealing with our fears. Because most of where we fail is birthed from what, where we're afraid. It's birthed from our fears. It's the way we process and relate to our fear in many ways is what causes the symptoms that we would call anger or frustration or being rude or you know, raising our kids a certain way and looking back and wishing we did it differently. Most of it comes from our fear. And so I wanted to look at this text of Jesus meeting Peter and look to see what fears does this story show us that Jesus brings into the resurrection because if he can soothe our fears, we might begin to suffocate failure a little bit. If failure breathes on our fears, if we choke out fear, maybe we choke out failure. Amen? So I want to look at this whole story through the lens of Peter. Peter failed a few times. When we meet him in Luke 5, he tells Jesus to get out of his boat. When we meet him in the Gospels, he tries to walk on water and fails. When he's with Jesus, he tells Jesus not to go to the cross, and Jesus calls him Satan. We see him deny Jesus three times. All of these are rooted in fear. Jesus says to Peter, tonight you will betray me. Now understand, this is God talking. And God says, this is how God relates to humanity. God says, tonight you will betray me. But I'm praying for you. Listen to this. So that when you return, you will strengthen your brothers. Jesus did not say, tonight you're going to betray me, but I'm going to pray for you so that you don't. He said, tonight you're going to betray me, and I'm praying for you so that when you get to the other side of this, 
you'll be able to strengthen others who are about to go through it. So right there, I'm thinking, how many times do I try to, like, as a pastor now, how many times do I try to prevent people from failing as opposed to saying, I'm going to walk with you all the way through it. And when we get to the other side of it, you're going to be able to strengthen some people who are about to walk down that same tunnel you just walked down. This is how God deals with us. So let's look at it from that context. The first thing that Jesus does, Jesus invites our fear of the normal into the resurrection. He invites our fear of the normal into the resurrection. I've waited for almost two years for this text to show up because this text saved my life in a lot of ways, and it's one phrase. This text with one phrase, Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter has seen him now in the upper room two times, once in the upper room and then again with Thomas. This is the third time that Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples. Peter now knows that Jesus, who was brutally murdered, is now alive. And what does Peter do? He stands there and says, I have an idea. Let's go fishing. I would be thinking more like Pinky in the brain, like let's take over the world or something like that. He says, let's, pink, I just dated myself a little bit. Like, I'm not, I'm not as old as a lot of you, but I'm apparently, let's go fishing. There was a point in my life, and I want you to hear me because plug your scenario into this. There was a point in my life where what I know God called me to wasn't happening. And I was getting very disdainful of the job that I had. Because every day it went from being glad that God was providing, being glad that God was providing enough for my wife and I to get married. It went from that and slowly developed over time, very slowly because the devil is more patient than any of us put together. Very slowly it developed into every day at work was a day not doing what I felt called to do. And so every trial that I had at work was really grinding against the reality that I wasn't doing what I felt called to do. And when you're not doing what you feel called to do, you don't feel motivated to go through the trials because you feel like you're wasting your time anyway. And when you have a bad day and you already feel like wasting your time, it gets a lot worse. Am I the only one? Then I read this text where Peter says, let's go fishing. And I texted Pastor Mark the other day, and I said, this text really stood out to me. I don't think I ever told you this, but this text really, and he's like, oh, you mean the part where Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And I said, no, the part where he said, let's go fishing. And Pastor just sent me question marks, like, whoever preaches on that part. (laughs) Here's the reality. We have a fear of the normal. Because the normal exposes The normal puts us in the place where we actually have to see who we really are. Busyness and drama, we act like we don't like it, but really we love it because it hides us from what's true of ourselves. Maybe you know somebody who every time drama leaves their life, they create some again real fast. There's always something to complain about. There's always something that wasn't right. There's always a look that somebody gave that they shouldn't have, and they turn it into like a whole worldview about a person because they can't sit still with themselves because we're afraid of things being okay. We complain that we're busy, but honestly, for most of us, days off with nothing to do exhaust us more than busy days at work. Because you can only look at your phone so long, you can only watch so much Netflix before you wanna kill yourself. Like, and, and you have those Friday nights where all of a sudden, because you're not resting in the normal, you want to you wanna do something with people. Maybe we should have people over. Maybe we should go out. And then people say yes, and then you wish that you didn't make those plans. 
And like we've said before, when they cancel because they're sick, you're praising God that they got sick. Because nothing feels better than when plans cancel. It's because we can't just go fishing. The most freeing part of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that Peter can go back to where it all started. He can go back to where all his failures originated and be back in the same boring, mundane place and see it completely differently than he ever had. You ready? Peter was okay being bored. If you know someone, if you're with someone, if you like someone, part of our character is defined by how good we are when we're bored. Because when Jesus is enough, I can be bored and be okay. When Jesus isn't enough, I have to find something to do, and sometimes that works out well, and other times it means creating drama for no reason. Peter was able to go fishing. This changed my life because this is the phrase God gave me, and I want you to hear this, and if you've heard me say it, I'm going to keep repeating myself because I'm a pastor and I'm getting old also. So for all of these, we'll over-spiritualize it. God wants you to hear it again. I just can't remember what stories I've told anymore. But here's the reality. God said to me, I didn't call you to enjoy your job. I called you to enjoy work. The gospel of the resurrection of Jesus says you can enjoy work even if you don't like your job. And that changes everything. Winnie the Pooh says to Christopher Robb, says to Piglet, I'm sorry. Piglet, you're my good friend because we can do anything together. But Christopher Robin is my best friend because we can do nothing together. We have to get to the point like Peter where we're so close to Jesus. It doesn't always have to be high-octane, stimulating drama. We can just sit and be with him and do nothing and be able to see ourselves in all of our good and bad and know that he's got us wrapped up. He is jealous for us. So he invites our fear. So many of our impulsive decisions financially, with our language, with our gossip, with the way that we present ourselves, with the way that we want to change from house to house, job to job, car to car, all these different things, the way that we want to get over things that have happened, and then when other people get over it with us, we're mad at them for not getting over what we wanted to get over because we still love the attention we were getting when we were going through it, right? When all of these things happen, we have to realize that much of the failure that comes from us is birthed from our fear of the normal being normal and exposing who we really are. It's not just trials that will change you. It's you actually being blessed and having nothing bad going on that will also expose and change you. Because when I'm blessed and things finally settle and I'm in a good season in life and there's nothing to hide behind or complain about, I now know why Jesus would go up to sick people and say, do you want me to heal you? Because when I heal you, you're now responsible for yourself. Right now, you could hide behind the blind eyes. But once I cause you to see, you're going to have to do something with your life. And so he asked them, before I do this, do you really want me to? Because I think that question reveals that sometimes we don't want to be healed. We want to tell people we want to be healed. But we're afraid of what might happen if our life is normal again. We have to be able to say with Peter, let's go fishing. Because when you go fishing, watch this, he catches nothing. That doesn't sell, doesn't produce offerings. But when you read, we won't go through all of it for the sake of time, but when you read Luke 5, it says he toiled all night and caught nothing. And when you read this, it just says he caught nothing. It says nothing about toil. Because before, Peter didn't like the normal. 
but now he's okay with it. So catching nothing was never the issue. It was the way he was relating to normalcy that was the issue. He wasn't toiling the first time because he caught nothing. He was toiling because he wasn't content and satisfied with his life. But in the resurrection, he could still catch nothing, but now it's not tiring anymore because something's already satisfied in him. So it's not about how much you make. It's about the God that you're relating to while you're making a lot or a little. Amen? The next thing that happens is Jesus invites our fear of the meaningless into the resurrection. Let's read John 21, 7 to 14. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, I love how John refers to himself that way. It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were too far from the land, about a hundred yards off. They got out on the land. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the nets were not torn. In Luke 5, Jesus performs the same miracle, and it says their nets were torn and their boats began to sink. But after the resurrection, the same nets could hold blessing that they couldn't hold before, and the same boats could hold the weight of blessing that they couldn't hold before. Something dramatic has changed in this narrative. I love this. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and also the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The meaningless is the reality that my work and production speak about me more than the love of God does. Whenever we live a life that says my work and my production, and I'm not just talking about your employment, your work as a Christian, your work as a family member, your work in terms of getting through hard times in your life, your work as far as your employment, all of it. My work and my production speaks more about me than the love of God does. Whenever we live afraid that our work and our production is what gives us meaning, we're afraid of the meaningless. And so we think that what we do and what we produce is where we derive our meaning. Which is why anytime somebody wants to borrow something from our life, here's one symptom of being afraid of meaningless. When somebody comes and wants to borrow time, we feel like it's stolen. When somebody needs some of our patience and we feel like they suck the life out of us. When our work and our production speak more about us than the love of God, we are suffering from the fear of meaninglessness. And what we're going to do at that point is we're going to put all of the weight of our identity and our meaning in things like our parenting or our ability to get through difficult times. We won't be able to accept help. We'll yell out, I got this. You don't need to try to help me. On and on and on it goes. I'm going to need you to plug in your own story here. But when what we do and what we produce are where we derive our meaning. We're not allowing the love of God to be meaning enough for us. And this is unbelievable what Jesus does because Jesus realizes they caught nothing out there. So the first thing he does is he says, cast your net to the other side, which means that their whole catch that they have had nothing to do with their ability to catch it. They bring it ashore 
and he's already cooking fish. I wish I had two weeks just to talk about this. Anything that you can bring to the table in your friendships, your parenting, your jobs, your education, anything you can bring to the table, Jesus already had that cooking a long time ago for you. The most we can do is add to what God is already giving us. We can join him. Watch this. How many people here have said the Lord uses me? Come on. I hope more. We have to stop saying the Lord uses me. Yes, I know I'm annoying because of semantics and stuff like that, but I love to be that way. He doesn't use us because things that get used get drained. Things that get used get wore out. He doesn't use us. He partners with us. He brings us into what he's doing. He's not using me. He doesn't use you. We use each other. He doesn't use us. He brings us into what he's already cooking. He asks us to take what we've done, which is really what he's done, and put it on the grill of what he's already doing, which means if I got to shore and I had no fish, Jesus still has breakfast for me. And for some of us, we feel like there's nothing on the grill, so my parenting needs to get put on the grill. Who I am as a Christian needs to get put on the grill. The way people view me needs to get put on the grill. The way people relate to me needs to get put on the grill. But when we get to the grill, Jesus already has all of that on the grill and says, did you catch anything? Yeah, we caught some stuff. Then just add it to what I'm already cooking. But no, if you didn't bring anything here, I already have breakfast for you. That means that his love is what gives us meaning. Our production doesn't. We can get to shore with 153 fish. We can get to shore with no fish and broken nets and a wore-out body, and Jesus is still going to feed you. Jesus is feeding you. Your parenting isn't. Jesus is feeding you. Your best relationships and your worst relationships are defining you. Jesus' breakfast is defining you. His table is what is defining us. So when we feel like our work is what defines us. That's why the first time you hear this story in Luke 5, everything is about toil, darkness, nets breaking, and boats sinking, because when we're producing our own meaning, it does nothing but break the capacity we have to hold blessing. Please hear what I'm saying. Is everybody, is it just the rain today? Like, when you are deriving your own meaning, look it, the nets and the boats sunk in Luke 5. That means that your capacity to hold blessing breaks. You become the kind of person who when you get blessed, it doesn't do anything to your happiness or joy. And then depression really begins to set in. It's one thing when you're feeling depressed because nothing's going wrong, but what happens when things start to go right and you don't feel any different? That's when life gets scary. When the breakthrough happens, but you are still broken. When Jesus is giving you your meaning, when he's putting on the grill what you can't produce for yourself, and then you catch something, the nets don't break, and the boats don't sink. Because when he's deriving my meaning, I could catch nothing or I could catch everything, but what he's put on the grill is still better. I'm working from being fed, not to be fed. I'm working from the meaning he's given me in my life, not for the meaning. No one in this room has to work for any meaning. Your meaning is Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Your meaning is God saying, go tell them that your Lord and my Lord, my God and your God has risen from the dead. That is your meaning in life. Everything you do is from that meaning. And so we have to be able to release ourselves from the feeling that says, I'm supposed to catch a lot of fish. You're not supposed to. Either he puts the fish in there or he doesn't, but still breakfast is cooking for you. 
And finally, and I'm going to nerd out on this. I'm going to do Greek words in the whole thing. And if nobody cares, honestly, right now, you're all staring at me. I'm having the time of my life up here. Don't care. Do care a little bit. Because sometimes maybe I derive meaning from response, as everybody here already knows. Don't judge me. My idols are out there in front of everybody. Maybe a courtesy clap real fast right now couldn't hurt. Just something. My wife just gave me a courtesy clap. It's a new low for me. No big deal. I think we'll all relate to this. Jesus invites our fear of the cycle repeating into the resurrection. Let's read a very famous portion of scripture here. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I want you to see what's happening here in Peter with this story. First time Peter meets Jesus, he catches a lot of fish. And he says to Jesus, get out of my boat. You're too good for me. I'm too bad for you to be in my boat. And this time, he catches a lot of fish and he swims to Jesus. But it's interesting to me that Peter swims to Jesus in the Sea of Galilee. Because the last time Peter was in the Sea of Galilee... It wasn't such a good moment for him. He said, I can walk on water, and realized he cannot. Peter doesn't try to walk on water to Jesus here. He jumps back into the place where he was the last time Jesus saved him. You don't understand how important this is. I can tell from your overwhelming response just now. You can't tell how important this is. Peter doesn't avoid the places of his failure. He jumps back into them. Because they mean something different to him now than they did the first time. He does, a lot of Christians say, when I got saved, I don't talk about my old life anymore. That is not what we should be doing. We should be relating to our old life differently so we can talk about it in redemptive ways. Peter jumps back, because Peter's basically saying, you know what? The last time I was on this water, I failed. The last time I was in it, somebody saved me. So I'm jumping back into the place where I was when somebody saved me the last time. And he swims to Jesus. But then Jesus, and we know the superficial part of this, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And we say it was Jesus redeeming the three denials. Peter denied him three times. Jesus asked him, do you love me three times? We've heard this before, but something more unique. And actually, Jesus is redeeming something more than the denials of Peter. And I want you to see why. First, we, this may be the strongest text in the Bible where the, where the words in Greek rob us of what's really happening. So here's what I want to do. I want to read that interchange again, but I'm going to show you by definition the Greek words that are being used for love. Because in the English, it just says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. But in Greek, they're using different words for love each time. So I want to, by way of definition, I want you to hear how this conversation really goes, and you're going to see Jesus do something that absolutely should bring chills to our body. Here's how the conversation goes in the Greek. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you adore me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I approve you. Simon, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. 
So it's not the same word for love. Jesus says, do you adore me? And Peter says, I approve you. He says, okay, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you adore me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I approve you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Now watch this. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you approve me? Peter grieved because he said to him the third time, do you approve me? Said to him, Lord, you apparently know everything. You know that I approve you. And Jesus gives him the same reward that he gave him when Jesus wanted to be adored. So it goes like this. Simon, do you love me more than anything? Lord, we could, we could be friends. Simon, do you love me more than anyone? The best we can do is be friends. And then Jesus leans down and says, Simon, can we be friends? And Simon realizes he's accepting the best I can do. And he's giving me the same reward as he did when he said, do you love me more than anything? The reward didn't change when Jesus went down to where Peter was and said, what you can do for me, Peter, is enough because I already have stuff on the grill for you. I didn't need you to bring fish to the shore. I didn't need you to try to walk on water. I didn't need you to tell me not to go to Jerusalem and die. I didn't need you to tell me that you would deny me, and even if the rest of these fall away, still I will follow you. Peter, I don't need you to do anything for me. I already accept the best you can do. I know you don't agape me. But when you read First and Second Peter at the end, he's learned to agape him. Not there, but watch what else happens. Watch what else happens. I asked Ian to put the same text up a third time, and I want you to watch how John uses Peter's name in this text. Watch this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. So John first calls him Simon Peter. Then Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you adore me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I approve you. He said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you adore me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I approve you. He said to him, tend my sheep. I feel bad for Peter. Sorry for repeating this horrible story a whole bunch of times. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you approve me? And Peter was grieved. Do you see that? Three different names for Peter are used in three verses. Simon Peter, then Jesus calls him Simon, and then John calls him Peter. What is happening here? John wants you to know that Simon Peter started the conversation, meaning Peter was confused about who he was. He didn't know who he was. He was Simon Peter. Remember, when Jesus met him, he said, your name is Simon, but I'm now going to call you Peter. All these things transpire in his life, and when, when he's finally meeting Jesus in this paradigm moment, John wants you to know that he showed up to Jesus as Simon Peter. I don't know if I'm, because of the mistakes I've made, I don't know if I'm my old self before I met you, or my new self because the self I am, Romans chapter 7, the things I do I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do I keep doing. I'm very confused about who I am. I feel on, but I'm off. I feel off, but then I'm on. I'm Simon Peter. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't first say, no, you're Peter. He says, Simon, do you love me? It wasn't Simon who denied him. It was Peter who denied him. So Jesus is doing more than redeeming denials. 
that would be superficial. Jesus is reaching back to who Simon was before he met Jesus and asking that man, I'm not redeeming what you did on Friday, Peter. I'm redeeming who you were before we ever even met. Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? And when Simon finally realizes he loved me when I was Simon, then John calls him Peter. God gives us a new name so that we can redeem our old one. Not ignore it. Fear of the cycle repeating is the thought that what was will happen again. So if I ignore what was, maybe I could kid myself into thinking it won't happen again. And Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am what was, I am what is now, and I am what will be. And so whether your name is Simon or Peter, when you look back, all you're going to see is Peter. And you can talk about those mistakes now because now the resurrection has touched them. The resurrection is now has invited your past into the empty tomb. So now you can talk about your old life. When you turn around and see Simon, you'll see Peter. Because I gave you a new name. I gave you Peter before I ever redeemed you so that you would have the space to reach back and redeem your old self. He called him Peter before their story even began. He only calls him Simon at the end after it's finished. Which means that Jesus made him Peter so that he could redeem Simon. We live like we're Simon trying to become Peter. But Jesus already made us Peter. So now we can look back at Simon and see the hand of God start to touch our past and not change it, but re-narrate it. So when we talk about it now, it's redeeming. But watch this. And I close with this, mostly. Revelation 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There was Simon. There was Peter so that Simon can be redeemed. Do we understand this? He calls him Peter so that Simon can be redeemed. But then John tells us prophetically that Peter's not our last name. There's one more name to come that we don't know. But we already have it. So now even Peter can be redeemed. What God is doing for you now is not the pinnacle of what he's going to do for you. He's not done being God for you yet. And watch this. He's not done being God in your present. He's not done being God in your future. But because he's omnipresent, he's not done being God in your past yet. You've walked away from it, but he still has work he wants to do presently in your past. Because you have a new name that's greater than that of Peter, which means because of this new name that we have that we don't know yet, even your new Christian identity can be even further redeemed. Which means eye has not seen nor has ear heard what God has in store for you. There's more redemption than you could ever imagine because of what he's already done now for you. So we come to the table. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Stand to our feet this afternoon. We come to the table because the Holy Spirit wants to redeem your memory. He wants you to remember your past. You ready? This is mystical. This is weird, but it's true. 
He wants you to remember your past in a way that is better than the way you experienced it. He wants you to remember your past in a way that is better than the way you experienced it. Because he's still there working on what happened in a way that you can't be. And when all of life is revealed, what we consider to have already been done is not finished yet. And God, you ready? One day, we're going to see our past in a new way. We don't have the brain to do that yet. But one day we will. Which means that right now, you ready? We can get from the future prophetic memories of our past. This is what separates us. This is what makes us different. And if this sounds foolish, I join Paul and I join Peter in saying, to the wise, the cross and the wisdom of God is foolishness. So I'm fine with this. This is not wishful thinking. This is truth. This is gospel. There is a way that we will see our past one day that we can't see it yet. So all we can do is remember the way it looked when it happened. But there, in God's reality, there is a way to see our past differently. And we can get from the future prophetic memories of our past. And the table is how we get there. Coming to the table is coming to the night where we betrayed him. Coming to the table is coming to the night where we doubted him, the night that we denied him. Coming to the table is coming to walking up toward every one of your worst mistakes. And when you reach your hand into that basket and that bread is placed in your hand, new ways of thinking about your past occur. We proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. I'm tempted to use the word magic, but we know it's better than that. I'm tempted to use the word, it's the phrase, it's supernatural, but I think that's become too familiar to us. As my mentor and great friend, Dr. Chris Green says, here's what I know. God happens when we come to the table. God happens to our past. God happens to our present. God happens to our future all at the same time when we come to the table. So bring it all, your fear of the normal, your fear of sitting with yourself, your fear of life finally settling down and you thinking, what if this is it? What if all I can do is go fishing? Bring your fear of meaninglessness into into the table, the labor of having to produce it all so that you can produce meaning for yourself. I'm telling you right now, your meaning has already been produced for you 2,000 years ago on Calvary. And bring your fear of the past repeating itself. We don't have to ignore it anymore. God can give us new memories of past life. And it is redemptive. Father God, if anyone here is living from these fears, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would blanket this room with the walls of your glory. Enrapture us right now for a moment of time into your timelessness. You know more than we can even think because we, we process more than we're conscious of, Father God. And so we ask that you would invade our whole system of processing right now, our whole system of thinking. I ask that you invade all of it. And when we come to your table, I ask that there would be healing from these fears. That like Peter, we would be able to go fishing. We'd be able to live in the normal. That like Peter, we would finally be able to jump 
into the water that was once our embarrassment, but now it's our baptism. I pray that we would, like Peter, be able to jump back into it and know that we're swimming to the Lord. I pray that, like Peter, we would hear our name change and that we would sense your presence behind us, with us, and in front of us, doing work on our lives that we cannot do, unifying it, tying it all together, working all things together for good. And I pray that when we leave here with such gifts, that we would be willing to be part of how you're harmonizing other people with their past, other people with their fear, other people with their insecurities, and that we would take part in that harmony that you're trying to do. Lord Jesus, here's what we know. We know that on the night when you were betrayed and handed over to sin and death, you took bread, and as we've been saying all Easter long, you held up the bread, and when you could have said, this is my body broken by you or broken because of you, you chose to say, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. And then you held up the cup, and you said, this is the blood of the new covenant and where you could have said this is my blood shed by you or shed because of you or because of your failures or because of your lack of faith or because of your doubts, you said, because of my love, this is my blood shed for you. As often as you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fall on brokenness and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus. We pray that you would fall on the broken bread and I pray that you would fall on our broken lives and harmonize all of our lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that as people leave your table, they would be able to face the normal, that they would be able to realize their life has more meaning they could ever imagine, and that they'd be able to turn around and look at their past and see a whole new story developing. And I pray that all of it would help us hope better, be more generous, be more hospitable, love better, until you return and you bring all of our past, present, and future with you, redeemed and restored. All this we pray in your holy, precious name, and everybody said, amen. So what I want us to do is I want us to come to the table, A, bring all of your worst memories to the table, and B, we're gonna have baskets right here on the front for Tori Rasmussen. It's always good to come to the table of the Lord, receive what he has for us, and then when the Spirit leads, give to missions, and help join God in what he's doing in the earth. So please, the ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.